It's a bit used, but I do have a giveaway. Y'all don't mind a bit used, right? It's not written or highlighted in. I mean, come on, at half price books, this would sell for like 30 bucks. What do you think, Frank? Heard of this one? It's uh, Shelley, Bruce Shelley. Church history in plain language. So this is an overview of church history, although it's not like the little five-minute church history book we have back there. But this is a big 400-pager. Uh, but it's in plain language, which means not lots of uh, fancy theological terms. So now I have to think of a question. All right, uh, Church History in Plain Language, updated second edition. Frank approves. Uh, it, it covers everything from the time of the apostles up through modern times. So tell me something about church history. What's a good church history question? Um, yeah. You are going to throw out questions you already know the answer to. So, um, Ask one that's related to First John and Pastor John. Um, what was uh, the heresy that came in the second century? We already see it near the end of the Bible where there was a teaching that Jesus did not come in the flesh. What would be a name for that? Gnosticism. Look at that. Greg's on the ball. Is that Greg first? Okay, Greg, you have to read this in a week. Read that in a week. Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught many things, uh, one of which Jesus did not come to the flesh because the flesh is evil. Everything of the earth is evil. Nothing is good. We need to be spiritual and go off and be spirits after we die, never to return to the body again. And of course, that's all kinds of heresies involved in Gnosticism. They buried a bunch of their stuff. Well, supposedly they buried it because they were scared. Uh, Christians were going to get a hold of it and burn it, so they buried it. It was found in the 1900s. And now it's the secret writings, the Gnostic Bible. You go to, you go to Barnes and Noble, it's the secret Bible and the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas. And there's all these Gospels of people that never wrote Gospels. But they were secret knowledge. They were hidden away for the initiates who believed that you could have uh, eternal life through Gnosticism, through belief in just the spiritual Okay, that's our alarm. Thank you, Hector. We need to pray now. That's the alarm to pray before I get too distracted. Our Does anybody, anybody need First Samuel? We, we were going to pick back up on First Samuel. We started there two weeks ago. First Samuel handout. And uh, here, you guys can have... Yeah, there's a couple. Raise your hand if you need First Samuel. Scott, can you pass that? Back this way. So we're finishing up 1 Samuel today. Then we're going to start into first, so 2 Samuel. But remember, they're both connected in the Bible. They're one book in the Hebrew Bible. 1 Samuel. Is that in the Old or New Testament? I hope it's in the Old Testament because that's what we're doing is Old Testament survey. All right, everybody got 2 Samuel for today. 1 Samuel finishing from last time. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for a wonderful morning, a morning to come and worship. And before we worship together as a church body, we are gathering just to learn here from the Bible, to learn from the Old Testament. Two-thirds of our Bible is the Old Testament, and there's much to learn about you. There's much to learn about ourselves there. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see, a heart to believe, and, and faith to persevere each and every day as we dip into your word and learn more of how to live a Christian life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys got to remind me where we were, somebody that marks up their notes here. So we're in selective interpretive issues, and uh, I think we went through some of these. Did we talk about the prophets, number three? This is a quiz right now. I'm going to test your memory. Round six? 
We're on six. Let's just review some of these because I like to, to bring these back up in case you weren't here. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but specifically in Samuel, 1 Samuel, what was the Holy Spirit doing? Was he giving salvation? Was he empowering for the Lord's service? Was he electing to Yahweh's service? He was empowering. These were people who had already had faith. Of course, the Spirit is involved in regeneration, but, but we're not talking just about regeneration. When we say the giving of salvation, we're talking about everything that goes along with salvation in the New Testament. The Spirit doesn't operate the same way in the Old as in the New. There are a few people who believe that everything's the same, but most people, and I think the Bible testifies, that there's a difference. In the Old, you could be saved and not always have the Spirit. The Spirit, of course, changed your heart, but didn't always rest upon you or live in you like we see in the new. So you see people who are not even saved, it seems like, like Saul, who have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit leaves. And then you see people who are saved, like David, who's praying that the Spirit not leave him because it is possible for the Spirit to leave God's people. And we only only really know about the Spirit being amongst leaders and certain people. We don't get the sense that the Spirit is amongst a large group in the Old Testament. So the length of Saul's reign, this was one of those issues where we had to uh, look at the text. What does it say in Hebrew? What does it say in the Septuagint? And remember, not every um, manuscript is the same whenever you copy it. So you have old manuscripts of the Bible. They get passed down and copied. The originals fade away because they're made on parchment or they're made on um, papyrus. And those things, just like paper today, it, it eventually fades. And so we have all these copies today. We have the original contained in there, but there's some extras too. And so in this case, it was a, an issue of determining how long did Saul reign. And we just have to look to Acts. The New Testament helps us there. To me, there's not a debate. If the New Testament tells us, then close enough for me. And I think it does say, does it say 42 in Acts 13, 21? Yeah, First Samuel says 42, but uh, I think the ESV says... So we went through quite a few translations. Um, HCSB says 42, NIV says 42, NASB says 40. Well, it depends on which NASB you had. Remember last time we had two different people who had NASBs. And one said 40, one said 42. So they made a change on somebody. They're not supposed to do that, except on major updates, but they made a change at some point. And then uh, the ESV says two years indicating two years before his rejection by the Lord. So I'm going with 40 only because Paul says that, um, and that's close enough to 42. The Bible is not trying to always be exact. In ancient minds, they were rounding years here or there. It wasn't, uh, unless something was very specific, it didn't need to be a specific date. An evil spirit from the Lord. So we're on this one, number six. Is that right, Sue? Okay. Let's read this in 1 Samuel 16, 14. An evil spirit from the Lord. Is this going to be demonic possession, demonic attack or influence, an evil messenger, an angel of judgment, a spirit of discontent created by the Lord in the heart, or a spirit, meaning a demon, bringing calamity or distress? Or is it just cedar pollen? Does anybody want to vote for cedar pollen? I'm going to go with cedar pollen right now. Okay, 16:14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So this is the Holy Spirit. He, he left Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. We can go to 1810. Happens a few more times here. 
Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand, and so he throws the spear at David. 19.9 Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with a spear in his hand. So he does the same thing again, throws it at David. David's pretty patient, isn't he? Uh, going back, even though his life could be ended at any moment. So what are we going to choose here? Well, we can rule some of these out. Anybody want to suggest one to rule out? C and D. So is it an angel of judgment? Like uh, maybe the angel on Passover, you know, that comes and wipes out the firstborn? It doesn't seem to be that. Although any kind of terrorizing, as described here, would be a type of judgment. This is not a specific angel of judgment. So is it an evil messenger? We're gonna, we can rule that one out. Is it just a demonic attack or influence from, from outside? Or is it demonic possession? He seems to still be in his right mind. Well, I won't say right mind, but he seems to still have control. He's not doing uh, supernatural strength and the types of things we see in the New Testament for demonic possession. Is it just he has discontent in his own heart? He's just upset. He's angry inside. He's depressed. He's anxious. Is that what we're talking about here? I think we can rule some of these out. Um, It doesn't sound like demonic possession here. It's not just a messenger, a human messenger. I don't think it's an angel of judgment. I don't think inside he, he's got a, a struggling spirit, although that's true. That's, this seems to be more specifically sent from God. So that sort of leaves us with these two. And I'm going with a spirit. I'll say evil spirit here. Uh, some people will argue this is an angel, a good angel. I would say this is an evil spirit that God permits, allows... And in that sense, sent directly to cause calamity and distress upon uh, Saul. Uh, You can call that demonic attack, I guess. I I could go with B if you wanted to argue B, but I think F is a little more specific. Because there are different kinds of spirits mentioned in the Bible. If you get into demonology, there's, there's demons who do these types of things, demons who do these types of things. Not that we should get into what demon does what, but the Bible does speak of demons that are focused on specific things. So I think the, the reason that God is mentioned here is because this is meant to be seen as something that is a type of punishment. We've got John MacArthur with us today as well. We've got a lot of noise coming. We have, we have an, uh, alarms to remind me to pray, and John MacArthur, what, is, what does MacArthur say on that? A spirit of bringing calamity or distress, so an evil spirit here that God permitted uh, to be sent. And this is, part of, this is part of God's judgment. So we could say, you know, eventually it is an angel of judgment, but specifically an evil spirit. Can God, can God do these types of things? Does God do these types of things? He does. He does. He, he doesn't have to actively do it. He can just step back and let it happen. Remember, Satan's on a leash. So if we have a problem with this, we really have a problem with which book of the Bible? What's the book of the Bible where God says to Satan, hey, what about Job? What about my servant Job? God comes up with the idea to test and tempt Job. That, that Satan can tempt him, and in God's mind it's a test, and Satan's mind is a temptation. And so God comes up with that. God permits it to happen. Who does Job blame whenever things go bad? The Lord, right? Is that right for him to blame the Lord? The Lord gives and the Lord what? 
takes away. Ultimately, he shouldn't, you know, he wasn't angry, I don't think, at God. He was just very distraught and upset. And he knew that the Lord had done this. Because nothing can happen outside of the hand of the Lord. So I remember when we were covering this passage in, um, in uh, 1 Samuel, I was also preaching at the end of Luke, where Jesus says, you know, I, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And this passage just kept coming up, and, and it came up in theology class on Sunday mornings. And these, this idea that God permits things to happen, God permits Satan to do things, allows, because it's in his sovereignty that we would be tested and sometimes even disciplined. And in this case, I don't think Saul's a, a believer. Some can argue that. We won't go into that. But I think this is God's a way of punishing him for uh, the sin that he's done. All right, here's a fun one. The ghost of Samuel uh, 28. 11. This is where people go to find ghosts in the Bible. Bring up Samuel. So Saul's having a tough time of it. Things aren't going too well. God's not answering him anymore. He's a little upset about that. And if God's not going to give him the answers that he wants, well, he'll just go somewhere else. Even if it means breaking the, the law. He's the king still in name. He's not really the king by this point. David is, but uh, he has all the power still. He's chasing David. And uh, he just wants an answer if he's going to win this battle the next day. So he goes to this witch. So uh, let's pick up in 28.8. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, and he and two men with him. They came to a woman by night, to the woman by night. This is the, the witch or diviner, sorcerer, whatever you want to call her, conjurer. And he says, conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done. So she doesn't know this is Saul. He's disguised. You know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. So Saul's been killing these diviners, these sorcerers. They're de demonic priests, really, who tap into the demonic powers and try to fool people or, or commit some types of what we might call evil magic, evil demonic things. And that fool people into thinking maybe that's God. And so he's been killing them, and now he wants to tap into their power. Why? Because God's not answering him. So, you know, he, how many times has Saul reasoned, hey, God's not going to do it. If nobody else is going to do it, I'll just do it. How many times do we hear that in churches today? Right? If the men aren't going to get up and preach, then, you know, the women should get up and preach. And if, if this doesn't attract them, if reading the Bible and preaching from the Bible doesn't attract them, then we'll do something else to attract them. There's always this idea that if God's not going to step up and do this, we'll have to take charge. And that's what's happened uh, here over and over. Remember, Saul's the one who said, Samuel, you didn't show up, so I went ahead and did all the priestly duties and I sacrificed. And, and Samuel says, what have you done? What have you done? So bring up Samuel. Let's continue with the story here. Um, Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. She still doesn't know this is Saul, but he's saying, Look, I'm not going to tell anybody. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. Don't worry about it. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. Samuel's dead by this point. And Samuel used to talk to Saul and give him the Lord's will. Samuel would say, Go and fight. You will win. You will have victory. So he wants that back. Saul does. When the woman saw Samuel... She cried out with a loud voice. So she sees something that she thinks is Samuel. She must have known what Samuel looked like. Then the woman spoke to Saul saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. She immediately knew at that point, this is Saul. 
the king said to her, do not be afraid, uh, but what do you see? So Saul doesn't even see what she does. She's the only one seeing this. And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, so now Samuel speaks. He doesn't see, Saul doesn't see Samuel, but he can hear him. Why have you disturbed me, from bringing, uh, disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed. For the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have called you that you may make known to me what I should do. So God doesn't answer him, not even by prophets or dreams. So what's he going to do? Go to a spiritualist. Go to a diviner. And now here's Samuel who was God's prophet speaking to him from the dead. And he says, look, God doesn't answer me. I want your answer. Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? Samuel says, look, I'm God's servant. Why are you asking me? You think I'm going to tell you something that the Lord hasn't already told you or not told you? Verse 17, the Lord has done according, accordingly as he spoke through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. This is what, what Samuel had told Saul would happen when he sinned. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek. Remember, Amalek was the king of the Amalekites. He was supposed to kill every Amalekite. He kept the king as a trophy and he made an excuse for it. So the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, meaning in the grave. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So eventually he gets his answer. How's the battle going to turn out? Not good. He still goes up to fight. He loses his life. His sons all die as well. So what, what is the woman seeing and what are they hearing? Is this just psychological only in the mind? It's not real. Sort of a, a schizophrenic or something going on here. Is this a demon that they see impersonating Samuel? That's a popular view amongst commentators. I think Matthew Henry says it's an impersonation. A demon influencing uh, the woman here. The medium only claimed to contact Samuel, so she's lying. Would be C. Or D, the Lord allowed Samuel to speak with Saul. What are we going with here? Everybody's going to choose D. Frank, what do you think, Frank? Stump the seminarian. We can't even stump the seminarian today. It's D. Why is it D? There's a lot of clues in the text, right? She's surprised. She's surprised, which means she doesn't normally have this response, right? She fools people. She takes their money, like, like, like palm readers and stuff do today. She's surprised that something is being seen here. She's fearful, not just of Saul, but of what she has seen. It is said to be Samuel. Saul recognized the voice of Samuel. He prophesies basically through this. So whatever it is, I don't think it's a ghost, what we would call a ghost. Um, there's really not any ghosts in the Bible. There's just evil spirits, demonic spirits. And you can't see them because they're in the spiritual realm. So I don't think this is that, that kind of thing. This is the woman being allowed to see something in the spiritual world, which is, is Samuel speaking to her from, from his place, whereas, you know, not just in the grave, that's what she would think, but he's with the Lord at this time. Um, 
but she hears and she sees, and then Saul hears as well. We don't know that he ever sees. I don't think he ever sees Samuel. So the Lord allowed it. It's a miraculous thing. We don't expect this if it's a miraculous thing, do we? In fact, I would say this is the only time that's ever happened. Now, Jesus talks about a, a uh, incident with Lazarus, remember, and the rich man. And then there's Abraham. And Abraham talks to uh, the rich man, doesn't he? Across this great chasm. Some say that's a parable and others will say, no, that's something that Jesus knows actually happened. If, if, that, if that actually happened, then that would be a second place where there's a conversation happening after death. But even if that was true, these are only in the Bible these two times or one time here. And we should never, ever, ever think this should happen again or will happen again. This was done by God for a specific reason. So on top of that, we have all these warnings, right? Not to go speak with these types of people. Magicians, sorcerers, even in the New Testament, in the very last book, who are one of the groups of people who will not get into the new Jerusalem? Sorcerers, okay? Yeah, I would say his body's in the ground and his spirit is what we would say is in heaven and in the intermediate state. Uh, Jesus calls it Abraham's bosom. There are different words for it. I mean, some people say Abraham's bosom is a different place, kind of this temporary holding facility. Um, but I, I think it's just another name for being with God where Abraham is. He's with the Lord. Because remember, Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham. And Abraham Essentially, saying Abraham still is living right now with the Lord, with God. He, his spirit is alive. So I, I think Samuel's there. What's going on? What does she see? She, she probably sees a form coming up. So look, I, would, I would describe it like this. She sees a vision of Samuel, but his voice is coming directly from him. Um, this is the case where God allows this to happen. That's my best explanation based on the text. Um, the Lord's allowing lots of miraculous things to happen or causing them to happen uh, in these certain sections of the Bible to display His love, His power, His grace. And the problem we see today is when people think these sorts of things ought to happen all the time or still at all today. So you have this little two-year-old that died, you know, a couple of weeks ago and Bethel Church, is there, they had a week, they got all this national news because they had a week of I don't know what they call it, where they gathered and tried to raise this little girl back to life. And they reasoned in their mind, you know, that, that Jesus did that, the apostles did that, so we should do that. If enough people just gather together and have faith, this little two-year-old girl is going to come back to life. Well, that's not understanding why things happen when they happen in the Bible, and that we don't have that kind of, of power. God could do it if he wanted, but there's no indication that he would. And in fact, I don't think he will until Christ returns and raises the dead together. Any questions on First Samuel? Of, yeah, that's a good. That's a good. Um, yeah, I think that's an interesting one because you know Elijah didn't die, right? What happened to Elijah? Taken up. Moses did die. So we got one guy who never died physically, and another who did. And they're both there talking with Jesus. It might be kind of like that. I don't know. I'd put it in the exact same category. Yeah. 
Is that a vision they see? I, I, say, I would say it's really happening on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah. So maybe, maybe similar. Another miraculous opening of the veil, in a sense, into the spiritual world. But, you know, I don't, think, I don't think if we had, let's say we had spiritual goggles, right, where we could see into the spiritual world. I didn't think we would see, you know, Moses and Elijah walking around on the earth, right? I think they're with God in spirit. What we would see if we had spiritual goggles is we would see demonic and angelic beings operating. Uh, so that, yeah, that was another case of the miraculous. That's a good point, Scott. There was a reason for it. Now people try to do those things to deviate from the actual things that they should be doing. They want to put these superficial things that they think they can control, but it's not necessary anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. These things were done for a purpose, and that purpose is no longer needed because we have the scriptures. And to expect and think that those things, or even try to make those things happen, I think is evil. It's like going to a, a spiritist. To say that you can do it by certain things is like saying I can go to the palm reader down there and, and know my future. Uh, I'm going to give you a prophecy today. How is that any different than going down to the palm reader and wanting a prophecy of your future? God has not commanded that to happen, uh, nor has he even instructed us on how to do that. How do you give? How do you figure out a prophecy? How do you speak in tongues, right? You, where's the instruction booklet on that? <laughs> Strange fire. Okay, let's look at Second Samuel. There's a lot of similarities because they're one book in the Hebrew Bible. We chopped up First and Second Samuel in the, the Greek Septuagint. The Western world did, and we've kept it that way in English. But it's the same. So the, if you have First Samuel, this is going to be the same on your handout. But it's important to recover uh, to, to go over it again to cover it again. So in Hebrew, it's just Samuel. They're combined. In the Septuagint, first and second kingdoms, and in the Vulgate, first and second kings, and then they add what we call first and second kings as third and fourth kings. So, a Catholic will speak of first and second kings and third and fourth kings. Uh, what's the theme? David's reign as king. That's Second Samuel. First Samuel is the need for a king. Now he's here. Second Samuel is David's reign. What happens in David's reign? The purpose, why, why is this book even in the Bible? It's because Yahweh established a human monarchy over his theocratic nation Israel and guaranteed, here's the key part for, for us, guaranteed its future and his covenant with David. He guaranteed its future. Not that it would always be upon the earth as a monarchy, but that it would have a, an eternal future. And we're going to see that that happens in Christ. What are the dates of these events? Uh, all of 1st and 2nd Samuel takes place from the birth of Samuel, which is around uh, 1110 B.C., and the last words of David, 970 B.C. We're pretty, pretty sure on 970 because that's when Solomon starts to reign, and we can date that pretty accurately. So around 140 years, these two books take place. Let's look at your outline. This helps us. The whole book is about David and his reign, his service to God, his failures, what happens as a result of his failures? There are so many lessons to learn in 2 Samuel. There's a lot in 1 Samuel. We get a bad example with Saul, a good example with Samuel though, right? Well, here we have a good example with David and a 
Bad example with David. But overarching is God's king upon the throne that, that God has made. And David is supposed to rule as a godly servant, as a servant of Yahweh. So the first 10 chapters are about his triumphs. Just because uh, Saul is dead does not mean David has free reign. He has got to fight some fights. So the first five chapters, he has these political triumphs. He's made king over Judah, but that's not all of Israel. That's just the southern half, we might say, the southern part of uh, Israel. Basically, his tribe says, go ahead, you're our king. Of course you are. We never liked Saul to begin with. Then there's a civil war that takes place in chapter 2. And then David's house is strengthened. I'm just reading the titles here. Um, Chapter 4, we have one of um, Saul's sons that is still alive being murdered. And then by chapter 5, David is king over all Israel. Now there's some spiritual triumphs. Uh, he, he tries to move the ark. He has some problems with that, but his heart is, is in the right place. That doesn't mean that God is going to forgive every sin. Of course, eternally he will, but there's still punishments. And so what happens when they try to move the ark? Somebody says, what's the name? Uzzah? 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 He reaches out and says, you know, I'll stabilize this thing. Instant death. Why? He wasn't supposed to touch it. He wasn't a Levite, and he was essentially... It was saying, what was that? God said, don't touch it. And he wasn't trusting in God. He thought, you know what? God needs a little help with this. Let me give him a little help here. Instant death. That got David kind of angry and upset. So he just said, fine, the ark's going to stay where it's at until his son builds a temple and they bring the the ark. uh, Well, the ark's eventually brought to Jerusalem, but it's not put in the temple until Solomon builds the temple. So David sets up plans for the temple, chapter 7. This is a good thing. It's pleasing to the Lord. At first, David thinks he's going to be able to build it because Nathan says, then Nathan the prophet comes back and says, hold on, God said, don't build it now. Your son will build it. David's a man of bloodshed. David's a man who's going out to war. Solomon's going to be a king of peace. Um, In 8 through 10, we have more military triumphs. There are still areas to be suppressed, areas of dissension amongst the Canaanites. These are still those people that, that Joshua and especially the descendants of Joshua, those after Joshua died, did not push out of the land. Joshua did his job. He died. What were they supposed to keep doing? Pushing out the Canaanites, fighting the Canaanites, conquering their cities. They got lazy. They got tired in the book of Joshua and Judges, especially in Judges. And they said, you know, we're kind of tired. We'll just keep these people around as slaves. Well, it's not even by the end, not even the second chapter of Judges. And you've got people fighting. The Canaanites aren't slaves. They're actually fighting against Israel, making them slaves. Israel is now the slave. So there's back and forth all the way through Judges, even into Samuel. And now we have in 2 Samuel, finally David takes care of the Ammonites, the Aramites, and... uh, He's also, in chapter 9, he is kind to one of Jonathan's descendants, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. There's a good name for your next child or grandchild, Mephibosheth. We're going to have some good names today. Anybody, you know, expecting a kid or a grandkid? Ahithophel. Ahithophel, that's a good one. It's not the longest. It's not the longest name in the Bible. I think that's Mahalashal Hasbahaz. Is that right, Frank? Did I pronounce it right? You're the Hebrew scholar. That's Isaiah's son. Okay, let's slow down and look at these in more detail. The transgressions of David. So everything's going great. 
He's getting ready to build this grand temple for the Lord. The ark's brought up close to Jerusalem. We've got all of these enemies uh, that are now uh, either gone or they're in submission to Israel. David has expanded the borders even of Israel. Saul will go further. But uh, right in the middle, we have David's sin. We should say sins. So, uh, Bathsheba is David's great sin, chapter 11. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. So that's a clue that David should have been with the kings because he is a king and he should go out to battle. That David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. See, there's another one where modern day thinking, we would just say, you know what? Well, let's let somebody else do it. I don't need to go. But the text said he should have gone. The kings go out to battle. He did not go. He's being lazy. You know what? My work for the Lord is, is pretty good. I think I'm going to stay at home. And what happens? Verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. Now what's she doing up there in the first place? Women don't bathe on the roof today. They certainly didn't back then. And today is much more immoral than it was in ancient Israel. So if women don't bathe on their roofs today or out, let's just say, out along the highway where everybody can see, then what's she doing on a rooftop where all the buildings around her could look down and see her nakedness? The woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when, he came, when she came to him, he lay with her. They had sex. And when... Uh, she had purified herself from her uncleanness, so she knows that it was a sin. She knows that it was a sin. She probably, and we don't want to go too far, but she probably put herself in that position to be noticed by someone in the palace. If not David, then maybe someone else. Her husband's gone away as well. And so she goes, she realizes that it's a sin. She is purified. She returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. So this is David's sin. Now, what's he going to do at this point? What should he do at this point? He should repent immediately and deal with consequences. But he needs to repent. He needs to repent in his, in his own heart with the Lord, and he needs to uh, repent to her. He needs to repent to her husband. But that's not going to look good, is it? So he doesn't want to do that, of course. So, verse 6, Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So he's got a plan. He's going to scheme a plan. Uriah just needs to come home. He'll sleep with his wife. And then when she's pregnant, he'll think it's his child. No problems, right? What's the problem, though? Uriah says, It's not right for me to be home, enjoying the peaceful life at home. I, I'm not going to sleep with my wife. I'm not going to go home and drink and be merry. And so uh, he won't do it. And this is going to be a problem because now she's going to end up being pregnant. So verse 26, Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, why is he dead? Because David sends him to the front of the line. Well, if he won't sleep with his wife, I've got to go to the next level. He says, I'll just take care of him. I'll send him to the front. I'll tell Joab to do it, and he'll probably be the one to be killed. Because when you're storming a city, the guy's on the front climbing over the wall. They're most likely to get shot by an arrow and killed than he was. So when she finds out, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife. So he has multiple wives by this point. And she bore him a son. 
But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. You don't want that said about you in the Bible or even today. It was evil. It was wrong. It was sinful. He's committed adultery. Now he's committed murder. To cover up one sin, he goes to and commits a worse sin. And he just keeps on compounding. So what's he going to do? He should repent right away, right? He's not going to. He's going to need other help. Somebody's going to need to tell him to repent. So Nathan rebukes David. This is a good passage here, the first four verses. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat out of his... Uh, eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. So this was the this was the pet lamb. This was the lamb of the house. This lamb lived like most people's dogs live today. He sleeps with them, eats off their table, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. What a, what a, he probably was going just like this. You are the man. What a strike to your heart that would have been to hear prophet of God say that after David had already said this guy deserves death you are the man thus says the Lord God of Israel it is I who anointed you king over Israel it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah and if that had been too little I would have added to you many more things like these why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, have killed him with the sword, the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. He's going to repent, right? Isn't he going to repent right after he hears this? He is. He's going to repent right after he hears this. Or he's already in his heart, I think, as he's hearing Nathan speak. But does that mean everything's going to be fine? I'll just repent and it'll all go back to normal. That, that's what my kids sometimes say, right? I'll just say I'm sorry. Then it'll all be erased and I won't get in trouble for anything I just did. It's not going to happen. God is saying right here, the sword's not going to depart from your family. David won't suffer a lot of the consequences, although he will suffer some. But his sons even will suffer many of the consequences. Some will end up dying because of David's sin. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. That's going to be a son who rebels. I'll even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. Somebody else is going to sleep with David's wives. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight so that everyone knows what's happened. You have no power, essentially, at that point. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel under the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. So David won't die prematurely. And he 
he's not going to be eternally punished. He had a faithful heart. He had a redeemed heart. That's the difference between him and Saul. What's the difference? I don't think Saul had a redeemed heart. So he failed. Did he repent? No, he made an excuse. David failed and sinned. What did he do? He repented. Eventually, he repented. And he wants to, he wants to make it right. And God says, you're not going to suffer the consequences uh, of death, premature death. I'm not, I'm not killing you right away. Um, so he said, I have sinned against the Lord, and the Lord has taken away your sin. And Nathan says, you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. This is about the name of the Lord here. Now other people are going to find out. They're going to blaspheme the Lord who's appointed you as king. This is what happens when a church leader falls into immorality. They're supposed to be an example of Christ. Every Christian is supposed to be an example of Christ. Christian falls into immorality. It can lead unbelievers to blaspheme the Lord. A leader of the church falls into immorality. It can lead to unbelievers blaspheming the Lord. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. The the child dies. Uh, As soon as it's born, it doesn't live very long. And David is just upset. You can imagine Bathsheba's upset. They do go on to have another child. They go on to have Solomon, who will be the ruler after David. But look at the consequences. The troubles of David. The last half of the book is all about what happens because of this one sin. Well, what turned into multiple sins, but it started as one sin of adultery. It's not that big a deal, right? It's all done behind closed doors. It won't affect anybody's life. His house is in turmoil. His kingdom is in turmoil. His son Absalom kills his brother, rapes his sister. Um, I mean, Amnon rapes and then Absalom kills him. And then we just continue on with these problems in the family. We have murder. We have conspiracy by Absalom by chapter 15. He's taking over the kingdom. David has to run into the wilderness and hide. Finally, he gets it back, but he loses a son as well, Absalom, from that. All throughout, he's even got a guy throwing rocks at him as he leaves the city. It's just, it's awful. He's humbled due to his sin. He's lowered in his state. Uh, There's just so many times where David is humbled, and eventually he does get the kingdom back, and he rules. And what does he do? He takes a census by the last chapter. He sins again. He didn't learn his lesson, right? We all learn our lesson the first time we sin as a Christian. No? Look what he does in chapter 4. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So he's not supposed to take a census. He's not supposed to do that. And it says the anger of the Lord. So the the Lord is angry at David. He's angry. And he causes David to do this. Now, if you go to Chronicles, I forget the exact chapter, but in Chronicles it says an evil spirit caused him to do this. Which is it? We're back to that same thing that happened in 1 Samuel, right? Is it an evil spirit or is it God? Well, God's sovereign, so ultimately it's God. That's what it says in in 2 Samuel. But in Chronicles, it says that it was an evil spirit because God permitted the evil spirit to tempt David to do this census. That causes a plague. And uh, eventually, David has to stop the plague. He builds an altar. He does a sacrifice. So it's not the best ending for David. But 
in the midst of all that, God makes a promise, which we'll look at in a second, in chapter um, 7, the Davidic covenant. So David's not perfect. Who's the only perfect person in the Bible? Jesus. Nobody else is perfect. Not even King David. And he's the best we got as far as a king in the Old Testament. What are the key chapters? There's a lot of them. Uh, David becomes king over all Israel in chapter 5. The ark returns to Jerusalem in 6. The Davidic covenant, which we'll look at in a moment, is given to him by God. Chapter 11 is Bathsheba. 12 is Nathan rebukes David. 13 through 20, Absalom's exile and revolt. A large section of the book is just dealing with one of David's sons trying to revolt and eventually taking the kingdom for a period. And then it ends on David's sin. And once again, he repents by the end. Let's look at the Davidic covenant. That's our only interpretive challenge, so we're going to see it in a moment. Might as well read it now. Chapter 7, verse 8. If you've been around here for any amount of time, you've heard this. I've even mentioned it, I think, in a couple of sermons recently. So this is before David's sin. He's planning to build the temple. This is a good thing. God recognized uh, long before he even chose David to be king, that he was a man after God's own heart. And it shows with his desire to build a temple, a great house for the Lord. Uh, Verse 8, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name. Like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Like Abraham. Abraham was told he would have a great name. He does have a great name. David is, from this point on, we hear of David. The Psalms that David writes, we still uh, even pray over and we still sing, in a sense, in our churches. Uh, And the New Testament mentions David many times. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. So a family is, is the idea here. A house, his, his own family line. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. So God is making a promise here. There's going to be a descendant of yours I'm going to establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is an eternal kingdom. I will be father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I remove from before you. Your house, your family line, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all the visions, so Nathan spoke to David. So that's the Davidic covenant. It points to Christ. There are various interpretations as to how much here points to Christ and how much maybe not uh, is talking about Christ. We'll come to that in a moment. But that's the covenant that God has given to David. There will be a king. There will be a king. That's what people are looking forward to from the time of exile until the time of Christ. Where is our king? We're waiting for him. He becomes known as the Messiah, the coming one, the expected one, the anointed one. They want a king like David. 
1223 is important if you want to know, I believe. Uh, it, it, it helps us know what happens to young children who die. 1223. Not everybody today agrees with this, but uh, most of the people in the past in the Reformed faith have agreed that passages like this tell us that young children who die go to be with the Lord. Uh, but now he has died. Why should I fast? So David's been fasting. He's been in great pain. Then he hears the child is dead. Suddenly he's eating again. His face brightens. He seems to be recovering. And they ask him, what, what's going on? Why, why, what are you thinking? And he says, now the child has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him and he will not return to me. I will go where he's at and he's not coming back. I can't just keep fasting once he's dead. It's not going to do anything. See, he didn't, he didn't call all Israel to pray for the child to be resurrected, right? Because he knows that's a, that's a supernatural, miraculous power that he didn't have, and I guess no one at that time would have had. So he, he expects to go. Now, some would say, well, this is just death. You know, he says, hey, what's the big deal? My child's dead. I'll, I'll die one day. But there seems to be a hope. There seems to be joy. This is not a sad thing like, oh, my child's dead and I'll die too. That's, not, that's pretty depressing. He seems to be brightened. He seems to be uh, happier because of it. And so I would say this plus other passages uh, can, can indicate where young children go, babies go when they die. 24-24, um, at the very end here, he needs a place to sacrifice. And uh, this man has a, a spot on the mountain here. Mount Zion is what it eventually will be called. And so the guy's name is Aruna. And David says, um, you know, give me this. So let's back up here. Uh, verse 21. Why has my Lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. So he's got to sacrifice right now. He, he sees this plague, this angel of death coming. And Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen, they're right here. There's wood. Everything's ready. Everything is ready for you. Just go ahead and do it. I'll give it to you. However, the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David uh, bought the threshing floor. He, ba- he paid for everything. What's the lesson there? I mean, it's just a brief little a little lesson we can learn here. Don't just think you're something special because you're giving the Lord what costs you nothing. It's a sacrifice. What does a sacrifice mean? It costs you something, right? You've got to sacrifice to give the Lord something. It costs you something. It doesn't mean it has to cost you everything, but it has to cost you something. This isn't just, you know, hey, I found a penny here. I'm going to throw it in the offering plate. I found it on the, on the floor out there. I'm going to throw it on the offering plate and pat myself on the back. That cost me nothing. That's not a sacrifice. Key people. David, second king of Israel, son of Jesse. Man after God's own heart. Absalom, third son of David. He revolted. Avenged his sister Tamar, who was raped by Amnon. He kills Amnon, his brother. And he's eventually killed by David's general, Joab. Joab's David's nephew. He's kind of a wildly, you know, scandalous kind of guy, Joab. At first you think he's, he's a good guy. And then by the end of the book, you, you don't think he's so good. He's a, he's a murderer. Uh, Ahithophel, uh, Ahithophel, there's a name for your next child or grandchild. 
He's the counselor of David originally, but he defects and goes with David's son, Absalom. And then God made his counsel foolish to Absalom. So Absalom begins to ignore him. Then he hangs himself because he's dejected from Absalom's counsel. Nathan's, Nathan's the prophet who rebukes David for his sins. Same commentaries as I mentioned before. Del Ralph Davis has a separate book on 2 Samuel. And then uh, Bergen, his, his commentary is combined, First and Second Samuel. Let's look at the only uh, interpretive issue here. Is this the only one on the thing, or is there two? I think there's two in there. Just one. Okay. Just one. Okay, it's the same, yeah, same one I'm thinking there. Who is David's seed mentioned in the descendant, the, the family, the house mentioned in the Davidic covenant? Is it just Solomon? Because there's talk about the house being built, the temple, we could say. The temple's built by Solomon, right? If doesn't last forever. In fact, he's not a great, real great example, right? Some will even argue Solomon's not saved. I think uh, Ecclesiastes tells us, you know, he, he eventually repented of his sin. But is it Solomon foreshadowing the Messiah? It's not a terrible answer, but it seems like in the New Testament, there's a lot more direct quoting about this passage from uh, the New Testament pointing to the Messiah. Both individual descendants, meaning every king that follows David, and the ongoing line of David that eventually culminates in Jesus. This is kind of one of those answers where if you don't want to pick an answer, you just put it all together into one, right? It's both and everything else. Or is it the Messiah specifically? So we go back to 719. The Messiah and only the Messiah would be D. This is not super easy. Go back to uh, 719. And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. The distant future. David's talking about the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. So David seems to understand that. And if you go back to the passage, though, what's the problem? What's the problem in that passage I just read to you about the Davidic covenant? If this is the Messiah, then what do we have in that passage? Yeah, when he commits iniquity. Now, some will argue that the when can be translated as if. And so it's more of a hypothetical. It's more of, don't worry, David, because David doesn't understand everything yet. He doesn't think, he doesn't know this is going to be the Son of God. Now, he knows a lot if you read the Psalms. But I don't know how much he understands about the person of Christ and fully God, fully man, and all of that. So, some would say it's if, it's hypothetical. Don't worry, David. It's not like Saul who lost the kingdom when he sinned. This descendant won't lose the kingdom. And even if he could sin, I'm not going to take it away from him. So, you know, we have to do something with that passage. It's interesting if you look at the Chronicles parallel. In Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 17, it doesn't talk about that when, he, when or if he sins. So it just t- leaves that whole line out. And it just talks about a, a forever kingdom ruled by an eternal king. Also, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 Right? He will be the, the, the throne of David. He will sit upon the throne of David. This is the Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. You know the Christmas song that we sing? I preached on that two-part series last year on Christmas. Luke and Luke 1, 32 and 33, and Hebrews 1, 5, they are both quoting and pointing back to this Davidic covenant talking about Jesus. So we have to include Jesus. We might say it's B or D. You know, I, I don't think you're heretical if you go with with B. I'm going to choose D 
and try to deal with that passage that talks about if or when he sends. And I'm probably going to lean towards the fact that it's hypothetical, especially since Chronicles doesn't mention it. But I, I, I've also taught in the past, this is where I could go back and forth, I've also taught Messiah, then Solomon is being discussed, then Messiah is being discussed. So it's kind of a both-and approach. I could go with B or D. Uh, but I do think the New Testament writers seem to say the Davidic covenant is about all about the Messiah. And they don't seem to ever connect it with Solomon. So study up on it. You guys can write a paper and convince me of your argument. I think if you say it's Solomon only, you're really denying quite a bit about uh, the Bible there in the New Testament. And there's a couple of commentators that say it's just Solomon being discussed. Solomon doesn't live forever. And all those people in the New Testament who talk about the throne of David and the Messiah reigning on the throne of David, it just doesn't work out. So it can't just be Solomon. Okay, uh, keep reading in your Bibles, staying up. Next week we continue with our Old Testament survey. Lord, thank you for our time to look at 2 Samuel. I hope that it's been helpful to us, Lord. When we read our Bibles every day and we go through our yearly Bible reading plans, we can understand these passages, these books better. Help us to take it to heart, to believe it, to live out the truth taught here. In Jesus' name, amen.